Welcome to Mary's Cup of Tea, the self-love podcast for women. I'm your host, Mary Jolkowski, an author, speaker, and all-around self-love advocate. And this is the podcast that will inspire you to love yourself. Hello, self-lover. Before we dive into today's podcast episode, I want to make sure you know about my two books on self-love. If you're struggling with body image or self-acceptance, then I highly recommend you check out my first book, The Gift of Self-Love. It's a comprehensive workbook to help you build confidence, recognize your worth, and learn to love who you are. Thousands of people have this book and the five-star reviews are so amazing. They give me so much life. So I hope that this is something that can help you too. You can get it wherever books are sold by searching for The Gift of Self-Love or go to my website, maryscupoftea.com slash book. After releasing The Gift of Self-Love and reading all your positive feedback, I realized that we really needed something to keep us going every single day. So not a deep dive workbook, but maybe like a micro dose of self-love in your daily life, which is why I wrote 100 Days of Self-Love. It's a guided journal with, you guessed it, 100 prompts that cover so many areas of life, including body, identity, purpose, emotions, mindset, relationships, and more. So you can really think of it as a metaphorical multivitamin, something to keep you going, or as I like to say, growing on your self-love journey. You can get this journal wherever books are sold as well by searching for 100 Days of Self-Love or go to maryscupoftea.com slash journal. It's my mission to share all the self-love tea with you, so I hope that both my books and this podcast can do just that. Self-love is inherently relational. It does not exist in a vacuum. We need people in our lives to show us love, just like we do for them. That give and take exchange of loving energy is ultimately what can lead us to connect with ourselves better. But we can't do that without connecting with others. It's this cyclical, beautiful human experience. And the way that we bring these people into our lives, the way that we build community and nurture it is by gathering. Gathering is something we've been doing since the beginning of humanity. And one big way that we gather is often during a wedding. This is something that I had the privilege and pleasure to experience for myself as a bride back in March. And in episode 157, my husband and I sat down and debriefed our entire wedding. We told you everything about it. In that episode, I talked about a book that has been life-changing for me in terms of planning retreats, hosting a birthday party at my house, and I took all of the principles in that book into our wedding planning. The author of that book has been my mentor from afar for the past three years, and I'm so thrilled, I can't even express, so, so thrilled that she is on the show today. Priya Parker is here to teach us about the art of gathering, specifically as it pertains to weddings, but keep in mind that these principles can be transferred to any gathering, and a gathering is any kind of get-together with three or more people. So whether you're doing dinner and drinks with your girlfriends on Saturday night, or you're hosting people in your home, or maybe you are planning a wedding, this episode is for you. You will learn about why weddings are so important for a couple and their families. I talk a lot about how me and my husband approached our wedding planning in a conscientious and feminist way, 
how Priya Parker's book helped us do that. The number one thing to consider before planning a wedding, this is some much, much needed advice for engaged couples. Please listen to this if you're engaged. And of course, how to set boundaries with friends and family as you're planning a wedding and maybe deal with any conflict that might come up. Weddings tend to send everybody in a frenzy, and this is why Priya Parker is here to help us root down into a clear purpose and give you tools for planning a wedding or hosting any gathering with intention at mind. In case you're not familiar with Priya Parker, she's a facilitator, strategic advisor, acclaimed author of The Art of Gathering, How We Meet and Why It Matters, aka My Bible, and she's also the executive producer and host of the New York Times podcast, together apart. Trained in the field of conflict resolution, Parker has spent 20 years guiding leaders and groups through complicated conversations about community, identity, and vision at moments of transition. You'll see how significantly this applies to wedding planning in this episode. She lives in Brooklyn, New York with her husband and two children, who we also talk about their wedding and what that was like. There's just a lot of goodness in this episode, especially if you are obsessed with community and intentionality and having deep, enriching relationships in your life. This podcast episode is for you. And if you are a bride or a fiance, then you must check out Priya's wedding course. It's linked in the description, as well as her book, The Art of Gathering. I really wish that I had the wedding course six months ago when I was planning my wedding, but the Art of Gathering book, those principles can be transferred into any kind of get-together that you are thinking about hosting in the future. So without further ado, what is ado, by the way? Does anybody know? (laughs) Without further ado, please welcome Priya Parker to the show. Hi, Priya. Welcome to the Mary's Cup of Tea podcast. Hi, Mary. Thank you for having me. This has been a dream of mine for years. It's probably a little embarrassing in case you know how many times I've reached out to you and your team over the past couple of years. (laughs) Persistence work. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. But then what was even more helpful is when my husband and I sat down on the podcast to debrief our wedding. And we talked about the first fight we had as an engaged couple. It was a few months after we got engaged. I was diving into all things wedding planning. The Art of Gathering was my Bible. It is highlighted and annotated. And every single thing I was wedding planning around was with like purpose and intention because I host retreats for a living and this is like what I do. And at the beginning, my now husband just didn't get it. So we got into it. And this is the story that I tell in that episode with him. I was like, you know, we need to have a purpose. Otherwise, it's purposeless. And he's like, the purpose is to get drunk and have fun. I'm like, no, that can't be the purpose. And I walked away, sat in the bathtub, cried, felt sorry for myself. And then literally minutes later, I get a ding on my phone. He texted me an article from your blog and said, is this what you mean? Oh, that's amazing. And what was the article? I'm not quite sure, but I think it was like a foundational one about like what the art of gathering really is. I believe the title was Fiancés. Is your partner crying in the bathtub? I think that was actually the title. I actually think I wrote it. (laughs) That's amazing. That's amazing. I mean, sometimes we just need a little bit of framing. Mm-hmm. And common language yes. to help us 
kind of see our ways through moments that are important and also stressful. Yep. And sometimes it helps to hear an expert such as yourself talk about applicable, practical ways instead of your partner who's super close. And I admit I can be a little bit scary at times when I get really (laughs) into something. And given that I've, you know, read your book inside out and applied it to my business, I just really wanted to nail it for my wedding. Absolutely. I mean, weddings are these kind of interesting moments. I mean, I think all gatherings are these sort of Trojan horses for our values and desires and sense of like the good. But nowhere is that more true than the wedding. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) Because in some ways, a wedding is this moment in time. It's an event that is the kind of culmination, the witnessed culmination of two people and then two families coming together for a moment in time to kind of display who they are and what they believe. Mm-hmm. And that's true at some level in every gathering. Like if you think about a, I do a lot of work with companies and and a company who is wanting to put on their 40th like anniversary party, for mm-hmm. example. And people think like, wow, this is such a sweet time or what an exciting time. And then all of this conflict in the planning erupts. Mm. And it's not because they're doing anything wrong or bad, but because gatherings, like these moments in time, these events where three or more people come together to do something is when you basically have on display the decisions that represent at some level for a moment in time who you are. And it's a series of negotiations to get that. And the wedding is kind of, for many people, it's one of the few personal gatherings or inherited rituals that takes at some level, some amount of negotiation about like, how do we want to do this thing? But the results are witnessed by your community. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there are definitely moments where you want to be like, fuck this. It's not (laughs) worth it. (laughs) Totally. So I'm curious to know, like, well, I think there's been kind of a shift in sentiment after the pandemic. More people want to gather and the wedding industry is obviously booming and it is an industry in some ways, which I want to talk about a little bit more about why we maybe should not be worrying about the napkin color and the type of stitching that is on it. Although I will say that did put me in a frenzy, (laughs) but I also see a lot of people expressing the sentiment of like, weddings are overrated, just elope, let it just be the two of you. Your marriage is about you. So why would you want a bunch of people there dictating what you want to do and then paying thousands of dollars to have them there? I'm wondering like, how you feel about that. I don't think weddings are overrated, but from an expert stance, what what's the importance of them? We get many mixed messages about weddings, about what they're for, about what they're not for, about what they should look like, about what they're about, about the questions we should ask. And we either can kind of oscillate between the wedding industrial complex and like eloping and throwing everything out. And I wrote The Art of Gathering as a book in 2018. And I recently launched The Art of Gathering digital course and specifically a course for couples who have gotten engaged to begin to work through The Art of Gathering wedding course in part to really deeply pause and work through 
not just why are you getting married? Because hopefully you've already had that conversation before you get engaged. But why are we having a wedding? And so often, like the messages that we're getting in society around even questions like, well, what are your colors? And, you know, what are you going to serve? And like, what is the floral arrangement? And what are you going to wear? All of these questions are elements of the party, but they are not underlying the source of meaning, the source of why we actually bring our people together around these moments to be witnessed to, you know, a, a marriage at some level. Yes, it's between two people, but really healthy relationships are also embedded in community and community of our choosing and in community of our inheriting. But these moments matter in part because when the going gets tough, as it does in any long-term relationship, as well as short-term relationships, right? Like relationships are inherently full of all sorts of different needs and desires. A wedding is this moment in which your community, whoever that might be, and whatever formation that might look like, is allowed to witness, to bless, to honor, to understand why you're choosing each other, particularly in modern life. And when the going gets tough and that person was at your wedding and saw your vows, maybe they even took a community vow to bless and protect. And I believe that's, you know, lowercase b, bless and protect this union. You know, are they going to tap you on your shoulders and be like, hey, look again, remember your vows? Remember what it felt like there? I heard you say, this is why you love this person. Turn back, you know, turn back, keep looking. And part of a relationship, part of a union, part of a commitment, part of a project, right? Whether it's a company or whether it's a relationship is healthier and much more likely to last when the people in your life are for it, understand it, and at some level are like sending love and commitment and connection your way. I really didn't expect to get emotional, especially this early (laughs) on, but a million percent, yes. And it reminds me of how, well, may I give away the first principle in the art of gathering? Please. Starting with the why, the your purpose. Like, why are you having a wedding? Just like you said. And once we got through that fight and we nailed down our purpose, I must have a husband bragging moment. It was a couple of days before our wedding and we actually decided not to, well, not a couple of days before our wedding. When we nailed down our purpose, we decided not to have friends at our wedding, with the exception of three of my girlfriends, because his family was 80% of the guest list. So we decided that our purpose was family-focused. It was culture-focused. It was about essentially establishing expectations of how Jewish is our union going to be moving forward. (laughs) That's fascinating. That is specific. That is disputable, meaning people can disagree with it. Mm -hmm. It gave you a decision-making filter. And I imagine as you began to have this conversation between the two of you, it was actually a transformative experience in the planning to realize what is most needed for this union to work, Mm -hmm. not just within, but with our most beloved people. And part of this course was so interesting to develop because... A wedding or a gathering, like the actual experience of the event itself, can be transformative for the guests, Mm -hmm. right? They see it, they witness it, they are celebrating, perhaps they're part of it in these different ways. You go to certain weddings. Like I've been to weddings where I don't even know, you know, I'm a plus one, but it's done with such 
meaning and beauty, you know, that I'm weeping, right? I remember yes. why people do this wild thing, like commit themselves to each other. So weddings or gatherings can be transformative for the guests. Mm-hmm. The wedding planning can be transformative for the hosts. Yes. And I really wish we had the step-by-step of your course to maybe not fight as much about it in the beginning stages. But I was really inspired by, like you said, a wedding that I, I was literally a wedding crasher. My girlfriend invited me to hang out in Colombia because she was attending a Colombian wedding. She's like, I have an Airbnb, just stay there. Well, the bride ended up inviting us to her four-day wedding. Granted, it was an extravagant affair, but after all said and done, it was the most beautiful experience of our lives. Like We would not have had such a fantastic trip if her wedding wasn't this like integral part of it. We saw so much of Colombia. We went boating. We went to these restaurants and met locals like you know, her family and just really, really bonded. And about a year later, she came down here to see us and we were kind of like debriefing. And I asked her like, how are you, first of all, how are you so good at this? Because she did everything from start to finish. And secondly, like, why did you decide to have a wedding in Colombia? Basically mid pandemic, it was about three months after everybody. Oh, she's not Colombian? She is Colombian, but her husband is American. So it was three months after the vaccine came out. And I essentially asked her, like, why did you decide to take the risk of like people not coming, given that it was like out of country in a very, you know, difficult time, still safe. Like there was COVID testing. I mean, talk about intentionality. There were COVID tests every single day. It was very thought through. And she said, and I will never forget the way she said this with tears in her eyes. She said, I wanted to show my new American family the beauty of Colombia and redefine its reputation. And she had a purpose without, I don't know if she read The Art of Gathering. It seems like she did. But the fierceness of it and her tenacity and determination, it's exactly what everybody took away from it. And we all walked away feeling incredibly inspired. The Colombian Tourism Bureau years ago had this like funny, provocative, disputable motto. And it was, if I remember correctly, Colombia, the only danger is wanting to stay. And part of what I hear in the story is this deep pride in where she comes from. But also this deep recognition, not unlike what you shared with your husband, which is like, if this is going to really work, if this marriage and this partnership is going to be one in which we honor each other's sides, but also understand it and celebrate it and don't approach each other with fear or otherness, I need them to experience. I need them to embody. I need them to come. I need them to experience the welcoming. And so at some level, it is her deep understanding and motivation that this isn't just like, in her case, this like fun, wonderful party. This is like the core essence of what's going to like allow for this very deep intercultural marriage yeah. relationship and family ship, right? Bringing together these two communities to work, to not just work, to thrive. It's a beautiful example. I'm so curious to go back to yours where, so the first step of the art of gathering is to begin thinking about why you're gathering in this way, what the purpose is of of your wedding or sticking on weddings. And part of the reason why 
the purpose matters so much is because so often when we don't actually define the purpose, we skip too quickly to form. And we assume that a wedding has to look a certain way, right? Whether it has a certain cake or whether it has a certain size, but at some level, whatever either popular culture is telling us or what we've inherited from our own backgrounds, whatever those might be. And so when we pause to actually ask, what is the purpose of this thing? Why are we doing this? And when you have two people or at least two people planning it, it allows you to actually begin to answer the question. It's like, well, what actually matters to us? And what what is it that we actually want? And I'm curious, how did you land on the line of only family? And then did you do anything for your friends? Or was this like, this was going to be family? About three years ago, I started putting together a playlist with uplifting, inspiring, and empowering songs. I originally did this for myself because I love music of all different genres, and every time I would notice a song that just made me feel good, I would add it to my self-love playlist. And now there are over 300 songs on my Spotify self-love playlist, and these tracks are perfect for when you're getting ready, trying to hype yourself up, or going through a struggle and need a reminder for how badass you are. If you love music as much as I do, then go to maryscupoftea.com slash playlist to get the Spotify link. It will ask you for your email so that I can send you this self-love playlist. And full transparency, this will also put you on my email list where I send out a monthly newsletter about stuff I'm thinking about, personal things, things I don't really share on social media, and all the happenings in the Mary's Cup of Tea world. So go to maryscupoftea.com slash playlist and let's start jamming to my self-love playlist together. Yeah, so we landed on only family for a couple coinciding reasons. It started with, well, we were looking at these big venues and these big venues need lots of bodies to fill because one of the principles in the art of gathering is to choose your space according to... Density. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so I was like, literally it was a math formula in my head. I'm measuring out this giant space and I'm like, oh my God, how are we going to get at least 150 people? Half of them are going to be people we don't know. Now, for some people that works with their purpose and intention and the way the family operates and it's like invite everybody you know. We started getting really overwhelmed by that prospect. And so we went kind of extreme the other direction where we're like, what if we just have it at our parents, my in-laws backyard? And that created a space restraint. And I think restraints are interesting because they actually force you to get more creative. So we're looking at the guest list and it just felt like certain friends, like Stan has this group of childhood friends from New York, from Queens, and then he has these friends in Arizona. And then I have, you know, friends from all over the country. And it just felt like the group, I don't know, like it wasn't working. And then on top of that, we have such a big family and we're like, well, undo all of that. What is our purpose? That's when we got into that fight. It's literally how this started because we couldn't decide on the venue. We got into that little argument and I was like, well, one thing that I'm really actually a little bit anxious about in our marriage is the expectations of how culturally and religious Jewish we have to present ourselves because he has cousins that are at the temple every single Friday and others who are absolutely not that way. And we kind of fall in between. So I wanted it to be like this symbolic 
representation of this is how we want to raise our kids. This is a tradition we accept. And here's a tradition that we don't accept. So one of the things is like the bride's supposed to circle the groom seven times. Our rabbi, knowing our purpose, suggested, well, why don't you each do three and a half circles to make it a little bit more modern? It was the tiniest of touches that other people might not have noticed as much as we did, but it was important to us. And it all came together to create this container of like, here's what we do. Here's what we don't do. Our wedding video is not going to be a three hour long production with drones flying in people's faces like most New York Jewish weddings are. (laughs) But we are going to have this very intentional, you know, picnic in Sedona and film our how we met story and put that in the wedding video. So it's the tiniest things that just made it really us. And I would say, particularly the example of the moving from seven rounds to three and a half each way is not tiny. It's quite radical. And part of the way norms get shaped is through ritual. And we tend to inherit rituals thinking that we have to do it a certain way or we kind of, you know, throw it out. And part of what the invitation around the art of gathering, which you absolutely took so beautifully, is to pause and to say, well, who are we? And what is it that we actually do want to inherit and honor and respect? And what is going to stop at this generation? And so often in our weddings, in our baby showers, in our funerals, in these kind of collective life moments, community moments, when we don't pause to actually ask, like, what is the purpose? We replicate forms that sometimes we don't agree with. Mm-hmm. We don't change our cultural norms and beliefs by saying, like, you should do this instead. Mm-hmm. Right. These are deeply ingrained values that by shifting a ritual, but also then honoring a specific way, help us think and actually reflect, like, what are the rituals that create and shape who we want to be? Mm-hmm. And how do we do that with care in front of our communities? I mean, you took a really bold step. Part of what I'm hearing you do is you created this kind of barrier, this natural barrier of the backyard, which is also a wonderful constraint, right? Which is like, we're going to do it here. So then there's a natural constraint, which allows it to be easier to also explain to your guests. My parents are divorced. And when my father remarried, he and his wife got married on a boat. My stepmother often joked, the thing about getting married on a boat was like, lifeguard rules. We're at capacity at 50, you know? (laughs) Yeah. That's exactly how ours was. That was our capacity. And don't get me wrong. My in-laws did stuff as many bodies as they could, which brings (laughs) me to, thank you for giving me that credit. I feel like I was brave and bold in some ways, but there were definitely, I wouldn't call them mistakes, but, you know, areas where I'm like, I just have to go with this. It's not worth the fight. This is about family. So I'm going to let family do what they want to do since that is our purpose is how I justified it. I'm curious to know, like for people who might be planning a wedding or a gathering and say they're not or they don't feel fully in control, like we paid for our whole wedding, but it was in our in-laws backyard. So I wasn't going to stomp in there and dictate everything. There were certain things I had to let go of just out of like politeness, I suppose, and respect. Absolutely. And care. Yeah. And I'm wondering, like, how do you suggest people set boundaries, especially when it comes to weddings? This is a huge pain point for brides, guestless boundaries, certain things they want or do not want, how involved people get 
opinions, all of that starts floating up. And I'm really fortunate that both sides of our families are are just really respectful. But I know that's not the case for a lot of people planning a wedding. Yeah, this is such an important question. And I wouldn't start with the boundary. I would start with the purpose. And like boundaries can be set in the wrong place if we don't know, like either for reacting or feeling kind of put upon, or we haven't actually fully thought through, well, what is it that I want? And am I just kind of like putting my arm out there to just sort of get a little space, even if I'm not setting the right boundary? So I know I sound like a broken record, but the first thing is to really create a little bit of space. I have a free guide. I think it's called the 10 questions. And one of the first steps in that is to create space for the conversation. And one of the things in this culture is often when you get engaged, like I remember when I got engaged, someone told me this would happen. And I was like, I don't know, really? The first question people would often ask literally after congratulations is, when's the wedding? And I remember being like, I don't know. Like, let us just like enjoy the engagement a little bit. And so the first kind of boundary I do encourage setting is to actually just create a little bit of space before you start wedding planning. And I remember we literally had a script. It was something like, we just got engaged. We don't know. We're going to enjoy our engagement period for two months. And then we're going to start thinking about this. It wasn't, I don't know. So what I just did right there is I actually created a boundary, which is it's not going to be forever. It's not like, I don't know, stop asking me. It's saying what I'm for, which is an engagement. It's this beautiful period. I learned recently in German culture tradition from a friend of mine, that in traditional like German seating orders, it's customary to separate a couple if they're dating, like at a table, they don't sit together or they're married. The only exception is when they're engaged. That they sit together. Yes. Because wow. it's this sort of, it's this very special time, but it's also a fragile time. <laughs> yeah. And so the first step is to really just create space to enjoy and to market and to like you know, go out together. I mean, other people respond, right? It's like, oh, you're engaged. Oh, right. Strangers. Like it's this very special time and like, don't flatten it. And then the second thing is to begin on the boundary setting is to as much as possible. And power dynamics are a huge part of every gathering, not just weddings. And that's not a bad thing. Any community knowing how you make decisions and what you kind of you know, negotiate on and where you hold your boundary is like, that's the dance of community life. Like you can't get around it. And so pausing and first getting really clear between the two of you, because a lot of alignment is actually often or misalignment is within the couple. And so the first step for many engaged couples is to pause and individually, you can do it over tea, you can do it, you can cook each other dinner, alternative evenings, whatever it might be, and just share what is meaningful to you. What is your image of what might happen? Like, and just listen, like spending the other back and forth. And sometimes what happens is there's misalignment between the couple and the work that actually needs to be done is each side needs to have some difficult conversations with their own families. Oh, right. And it's not coming out and saying, this is the guest list or this is that. It might be saying, hey, in a family where there's different norms around alcohol, for example, whether religious or other reasons, we're not serving alcohol at our wedding, or we are serving alcohol at our wedding. I know a friend who is Muslim and has like lots of different community members and family members with different relationships and rules around alcohol and has decided to have alcohol at their milestone event, but they didn't spring it on their 
family or community member, they realize that they're going to make this decision for the people in their life who do drink alcohol is going to force a conversation to have with the people that are not going to drink alcohol who might have a problem with it, but it, it forces a conversation ahead of time. And that's so true within any couple because it's this kind of alignment around not just each other's expectations, but what do we need to do to take care of in our own house? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And is especially in in many heterodynamics and many cultures such as my own, I'm assuming that most people listening to this identify as feminists. I was met with the fact that all the difficult questions and decisions were directed at me as the bride. And we definitely had a few moments where I had to be like, can you please talk to your family about this kosher food situation? Because I don't even know what to say about it, you know, because I don't mind having kosher food if it's important to you, but I don't think it should be like my thing to discuss. Absolutely. It's the first big planning project in any queer or heterosexual couple. It's the first big planning project you're taking on together. Mm -hmm. And particularly in heterosexual couples, there is a gender dynamic that the woman plans the wedding. Broad strokes, right? Like this is her thing, bridezilla, like all of these like cultural tropes around it. And particularly for couples who like at some level are wanting to practice and model an equitable partnership, whatever that looks like, right? Financially in parenting and working and having both both take care of and pay attention to the home and pay attention and take care of the public space. Like this is your first shared project. And so practicing even sharing weight around who's doing what and that this doesn't just fall on one of the partners, whoever that may be, is an incredibly important modeling so that you're both practicing. What does it feel like to share the weight of something that is going to be for both of our communities? Mm -hmm. Yes. I'm curious to know what your wedding was like. (laughs) And what was its purpose? So I got married before I wrote The Art of Gathering. My husband and I did kind of a series of YouTube videos recently where someone asked us, it was like the most asked questions on the internet and then from our community, from my community about our wedding. And one of the things Anand said was, well, you hadn't written The Art of Gathering yet. And so we backed into our purpose. (laughs) I saw that part. That made me laugh. (laughs) And I think part, we did what, you know, what I think so many people do, which is we kind of backed into it through like proxy wars. We were trying to figure out like, well, who should we invite? And we were surprised when different ones of our parents wanted to invite, like, for example, all of their cousins whom like, we didn't feel like we had a relationship with. And all of these kind of expectations come out around, of course, so-and-so would be there and be like, I have literally not seen that person since I'm two. Right. And so we actually have to pause and think separately together. Okay. Why are we doing this? What is this for? Who is this for? And then have some difficult conversations with our parents, including telling some of them they couldn't invite their cousins because, you know, I'm a child of divorce. My parents are each remarried to other people. There's multiple cultural backgrounds, there's multiple religious backgrounds. So there's six parents involved, right? Already. It's sort of what you were saying about the different friends on your husband's side and your side. If we let one family member invite all of their adult cousins, are we then having all six sets of parents inviting all of their cousins? And so anyway, it it was this forcing mechanism for everyone to kind of wrap their head around the realities of a complex family and a larger family and a family of both divorce and reparation. But our wedding was, it was in Goa, where we have family links to. 
And it was a mix of different, of different elements. But I mean, some of my favorite was we did the, what's called a Sangeet and in at least Hindu tradition, which is sort of, it's traditionally a night of singing and dancing the night before the wedding, but we shifted ours a bit to make it like a talent show. And so we had friends and family come and, and sing opera and do rap battles and do beatboxing and do toasts and roasts. And, and it was, again, it's like a tilt of the form. And at different moments, I think going back to the earlier question, like I really thought about what part really mattered to me and which parts like it was okay to have a family member intervene. We got married and the symbol of our, of our union, we used rings. And my grandmother, who at the time was probably 89, she said, but how will we know when they're wed? She said in Hindi. And she said, if there's no garlands, they're not married. Mm -hmm. And like, that wasn't true for either of us, but it was true for her. And again, it's like, do we allow this? Are we drawing the line? Like where, where, and what does it mean? And so we exchanged rings. And at the end, they were like really, really, really excited about it. And they really, really, really cared. And so both of our maternal grandmothers sort of stepped forward and like handed us our garlands, not flower girls and flower boys, like our grandmothers, right? It's like pausing. What's the need? What is the purpose of our wedding? Is this an honoring? Does this go against our values in any way? Like it didn't, it just wasn't particularly meaningful to us, you know? And then we garlanded each other. And then interestingly, because it's a very mixed wedding, like all the Indians started to clap, you know? <laughs> it's like, mm. Now it's done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. Maybe it wasn't meaningful to you, but it was important to those you love and that yes. must have fallen into your values. That's what I really love about the art of gathering approach is modern pep talks for brides that I see on TikToks are like, fuck everyone. This is about you and your partner. Do whatever you want. And as much as I understand that intention, and we need to hear that sometimes because people can really drive us crazy around wedding times. But I'm not a fuck everyone kind of person. I care deeply about my family. And like you expressed with setting boundaries, like that was such an elegant example. Whereas I, I think some modern day boundary setting scripts are very much like me focused. But I exist in community and I want to keep existing in a peaceful community with, you know, an equal exchange of energy. And sometimes there's conflict. And I love that you talk about how conflict isn't always a bad thing. Could you touch on that a little bit? You know, conflicts can be deeply, deeply generative. And I'm a conflict resolution facilitator. That's still my day job. That's my craft. I, I wrote The Art of Gathering as a dialogue facilitator. I'm not an events planner. I'm not a wedding planner. I'm like a terrible cook. <laughs> and, and part of the reason I wrote this book is in part because two things. One is I could see that so much of what we're taught in popular culture is that if you want to host a beautiful gathering, you have to shape the things, right? A beautiful cake, beautiful flowers, perfect lighting. And it's not that that's not part of the context and beauty, but this shouldn't be the only source of meaning. And as facilitators, we're taught how to create connection between people, how to create meaning between people, how to focus on the moments that really matter, like shifting the circle from seven to three. But the second thing is I'm a conflict resolution facilitator. And I know that gatherings, I said this at the beginning of our conversation, are these forcing mechanisms to often have the conversations we've been avoiding. Because if you're at his family's house 
to have dinner and say you're keeping kosher or whatever the example is, they're saying grace, like whatever cultural mm-hmm. context that partner's from. Maybe you go through it and it's like, yeah. And then you go to your family's home and it's a totally different way to be. And like, yeah, maybe that's also part of you and you go with it. But a gathering like a wedding is basically both sides are witnessing and you kind of have to decide who are we going to be in front of our collective community, which is, by the way, why some people elope and, you know, financial reasons as well. But I think part of the beauty of wedding planning is that relationships are are full of conflict and conflict meaning like a clash of interests, a clash of needs, a clash of desires, a gap between what the two of you or the four of you, the six of you in a community, you know, think you want. And at some deep level, like when you allow yourself to identify and articulate your needs with other people and then negotiate and listen through them, like that is a deeply democratic act. And mm-hmm. so these are muscles we deeply need, both absolutely within our kind of founding union, but also within our our families. Like this is this is practice. And you can kind of throw the baby out with the proverbial bathwater and just say, I'm not going to gather. But so often, like the ways we gather is kind of how we live. It's it's our opportunity to shape who we are. It's like a, these tiny little declarations that allow people to meaningfully connect without all having to be the same. And particularly Mm -hmm. in diverse communities, when people are, as they are today, more and more marrying across religion, marrying across Mm -hmm. nationality, queer marriages, like we have to begin to think when you don't have inherited forms, frankly, when the forms weren't designed for you, it gives us an opportunity to actually pause and ask this like deeply sacred question, which is how now shall we live? How now shall we do this? And so when we pause and actually ask that, it's this deeply generative question, but you can't really go around the conflict because it's actually the core elements that allow the spark, allow the the fire, if you will, allow even some of the rest for each of us to even get, get clear on what we want. I mean, part of the mess is like, we don't really know what we want until we've been faced with some of these decisions. Like if you were ever like writing a will, it's like, what do you want your funeral to look like? It's like, I don't know, right? It's not that we come with these like preconceived, most people, preconceived notions of it has to be this way. But the wedding is this helpful social forcing mechanism to help a couple kind of like chisel out some space for themselves to figure out as individuals in this union, who are they in this moment? And by the way, that'll change with time. But as you mark, it's like a snapshot in time in this wedding for these moments, this is what we believe and this is who we are. And this doesn't mean that you have to have every single thing be totally meaningful, but to know what matters to you and to protect that and to mm-hmm. educate and then to also like give the grace to others to do the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My mom said something similar without realizing the impact it had on me, but we were talking about like protecting what's important to you that goes back to your purpose and your why. And when it came to the kosher food, I was, you know, bitching about it probably. <laughs> and she goes, well, do you care? I'm like, actually, no, <laughs> I like all Beautiful. food equally. Beautiful. And that was that, like, it was that easy. I just needed somebody to remind me to think about or circle back to what I said I wanted and what I truly did want. There's like a discernment there. That's a really unusual, like, good job, mom, because she was truly kind of holding up a non-judgmental mirror to you. 
she wasn't forcing you, it sounds like, to like think about what she wants. She's just like taking a mirror for a second and say, well, like, do you care? Like, what do we care about? And I remember when I was getting married, it was, my mother was very, very surprised that I wasn't going to wear a red dress. And I was shocked because like she married a white man. Like my name is Priya Parker. You know, like my dad's this white American, that dude from Iowa. And almost every wedding I'd ever gone to growing up because we primarily lived in the U.S. was like a Christian-ish, right? Judeo-Christian wedding where there was a very specific form. And I hadn't been to many Indian weddings. And so in my cultural mind, growing up in this country, growing up as a half-white person, Christian on my father's side, I had this very specific image. And it wasn't until literally like my wedding that we realized our two images clashed. And part of what happens in any of these weddings is it reflects within a family these core questions also for the previous generation. Like, that's the mental model I gave to my child? Huh. Right? Like, did I do a good job as an immigrant? Did I teach her enough Hindi? Right? And so all of this stuff comes up that at some level is supposed to come up because weddings are unions. It's a birth of a union. But there's also a number of tiny little deaths inside these, right? It's like the death of your singlehood, the death of like the family of origin being the first family. And so conflict is embedded, it's designed, it's needed for this new union to break away and form, but not to float away into the abyss. Mm -hmm. This is deeply personal to me because a couple of days before the wedding, I was faced with the pretty difficult conflict with somebody that meant the world to me and was really scared of losing me after the wedding and thinking about what that shift is going to be like and talk about a tiny death that probably felt really big to her to my little sister losing feeling like she was giving up her big sister to somebody else who's really important in her life so I'm curious to know for people who are facing conflict whether inter relational conflict within their own soon-to-be marriage or marriage in general. It doesn't matter. I, I think these principles just apply to anybody. Or with family in regards to wedding planning, is there a conflict resolution tip, technique, mindset that we could embody to just go through that in an elegant way? I literally created the Art of Gathering digital course wedding edition because I was so excited to do a conflict unit. And it's not actually in the Art of Gathering digital course. It is specifically in the wedding material because so much of wedding planning is about the stuff and the logistics, but actually there's three elements that is like the fundamental foundation for any couple to go through. That is purpose. Why are we doing this and how do we get aligned around this? Reinventing and reimagining ritual. What do we keep? What do we throw out? What do we invent? And third, navigating conflict. And the first step in any type of conflict moment is to pause and just like we've been talking about and to actually like revisit purpose and revisit purpose. Like, why are we doing this? What is at the core of this? Who is this for? That's the first. And then the second is to practice some of these skills. Like for many people, a wedding is is line drawing and line drawing with our most beloveds. And so when people are getting upset at different moments in your wedding and thinking, what is happening? Why? You know, why is this so hard? It's because weddings 
trigger and they're designed to trigger core questions about identity and role. Like, who am I in this family? Who are we? Right. What does it mean to be a Parker or a Narayan or a like, you know, Smith, like fill in the blank. And so first of all, just knowing like we're all kind of going through these deeper questions that don't always arise and it's okay. I think the second thing is getting a little bit comfortable with grief and getting a little bit comfortable with loss, like within, and this is not my quote, within all change, there's loss. Like your sister's right to be sad. Your, she's right to grieve. Like she is losing positionality in your life as she should. I forget what psychologist this is. I heard recently, like the family is the only unit that's designed to basically like push out and away mm-hmm. its members. Yes, there's the lineage, but at some level, it's like you create your own and a new form to welcome it, maybe too far a step, but to know that this is normal, that conflict can be incredibly generative when done well, that it can be clarifying, and that there is some amount of really important work for the two of you to create some amount of space as you're finding space for your own unit. And the wedding planning process can practice some of that. On my Instagram account, I often ask like various questions. When's the time you've seen an awesome dress code? Or what, you know, when is the time you've seen someone exclude well, like practice generous exclusion? And one of the questions I asked was, when is the time you've seen someone exclude well? And a person shared, and every example I share, I have permission to share. She shared this example from her wedding and she said, my husband and I decided I have a very small wedding, just our immediate family. And my husband's brother called and asked if we could invite his mother-in-law, basically the fiance's sister-in-law's mother, to make the sister-in-law more comfortable. And the couple held the line and they said no. And the conversation didn't end there. The entire family was like really surprised and they kind of kept pressuring them to like invite the mother-in-law invite why would you invite the mother-in-law like what's wrong with you like what's gotten into you right and they pause and and she felt so protected and honored by her fiance who also held the boundary because he understood like she was saying she was not inviting many of her most beloved friends her beloved aunts and uncles because they just chose to keep it on the parents and that by inviting this other one because it's the brother's need, not because it's their need. It actually creates all of this other complication. But she ended up drawing the boundary with care and she called the mother-in-law and explained it to her. And the mother-in-law was fine with it, right? So part of this is also like, how do we draw boundaries of care? And they protected the purpose. And in so doing, they created a little bit of space, a little bit of otherness, a little bit of differentiation that we in some ways are like you, and in some ways we are not. And you may not understand every uh, decision of ours, and that's okay, because this is our union. Oh, this is such a beautiful place to end, because it's also empowering. It's empowering to both parties, not just to the bride and groom, but also to that mother-in-law who had to be okay with that and who was okay with that. It's a lot of family dynamics. And I <laughs> I really love navigating those. I really hope we can do a part two talking about intentional gathering as a couple because it's something that my husband and I are, I wouldn't say struggling with, but we definitely don't have friends that are down to do much outside of dinner and drinks. And I would really like to change that. I would really like to 
dress up as Pitbull for one night and do all these fun things I see people doing, but it's hard to facilitate. And I also just you made me remember that I left our listeners hanging on my husband bragging story and it's perfect oh, in this part. Amazing. So like 30 more seconds, we're in the shower two nights before our wedding and somebody had canceled. So we had an extra space on the guest list. Actually, we had two extra spaces. And I'm like, babe, why don't you invite your really close friend? And he said, no, he said, I'm not, I'm not inviting him because I don't see him being a very important part in our future family. It's not somebody I would necessarily want my kids to be around. And because ours was so like family focused and boundary establishing in terms of like how we were going to be moving forward, it was like tears in my eyes. I was like, he gets it. And I felt very seen and, and heard by that. And it reminded me of that special bride and groom story that her fiance also protected her by being like, she's making a sacrifice and so will I. It's beautiful. At some level, it's not him pleasing you. It's not like you winning. It's not you being in a position of trying to convince him of something. You have each deeply embodied and accept and are celebrating the shared purpose, right? Which will serve you in all the days of your lives. I mean, even your part two question, like think about your purpose, about how you want to community right? This is the mm -hmm. whole thing. Gathering is practice. It's a practice that we nurture. It's a practice that like, it doesn't end, right? Like then you are newlyweds and you're trying to figure out how do we community? And then perhaps you have children or you have a new job and you think, how do we co-parent? How do we shift how the inherited forms look? And so I would say use the same practice to find specific ways, like host a party, explain it, send an invitation, find the need around it, explain to people why they want to come or not. And at some level over time, if none of the people in your life want to hang out this way, that's data, right? That may have been a different phase in your life. And you need to find also new ways of building community and seek things out. Like part of modern life is fortunately, unfortunately, we are the people who like begin to, as we evolve, as we are in relationship, to deeply think about like, what is it that we need and how do we invite and encourage and organize people around that? And then how do we also be that to others? And so they may not want to dress up like Pitbull. Is that what you said? <laughs> Pitbull, the, the singer. <laughs> the singer, right? Like, you know, like, or maybe they show up literally as a Pitbull because they don't understand what you're saying, right? But it's like at some <laughs> level, like friendship and community is also reciprocity. And it's not saying like, I don't want to do that because I don't know who Pitbull is or I don't know the rapper. It's like, okay, Mary's excited about that. She's enthusiastic, right? At some <laughs> level, like there's like forward motion and people are like, what are you up for? Like part of modern life is also choosing relationship and friendship and community and nurturing it. And if you feel like you're like watering the wrong garden, I think you don't want to upend every community you're ever a part of, but this is data. And at different phases mm -hmm. in our life, we need to kind of look up, look around and begin to ask like, well, how do we want to be spending our time and with whom? Hmm. Thank you so much for your mentorship, Priya. It's been invaluable. And I will definitely have all the links in the description to that blog post for a starting point, your wedding course, which is so needed. Again, no hard feelings, but you kind of made this six months ago. <laughs> <laughs> but your book has just gotten me through many retreats. My 24th birthday dinner, it was the first gathering we ever hosted in the home, inspired by the art of gathering, our wedding. So just thank you, thank you, thank you from the bottom of my heart. This is a dream come true. Thank you so much for having me and for modeling and practicing and showing like you don't 
figure it all out. It's like one step at a time. And for trying a specific disputable purpose and sharing it with your community. And thank you for having me. It's a real treat. One last thing before we farewell, my self-lovers. If you've been enjoying the Mary's Cup of Tea podcast, I would greatly appreciate it if you could leave a review on Apple or rate the show on Spotify. You can do this by searching for the show, Mary's Cup of Tea. Scroll all the way down on Apple Podcasts and you'll see stars where you can click one of the stars and leave a few kind words. It just means so much to me because I'm so behind the scenes when I'm podcasting, so I don't really get to see the impact of the show unless you leave a review. And on Spotify, there's just a button that says rate the show and it'll let you put however many stars you want. Your feedback helps the podcast grow. And as someone whose love language is words of affirmation, your kind words mean the world to me. Thank you so much for supporting the show and helping me spread the gift of self-love. I love you all so much and I will talk to you in next week's episode.